I know that next Sunday is Labor Day weekend, and many probably have plans to be out of town, but hopefully you will be here because uh, Zach May is be, will be here to speak for us, and I want to invite everybody to possibly be here, be here to hear the message that Zach brings to us next Sunday, and we look forward to hearing Zach. Uh, I know many of you already know, but for those of you who may not have heard, uh, there are some faces around here that you always expect to see, and uh, Randy Templeton's is one of those. But this past Tuesday, uh, Randy had a massive heart attack, and uh, he, uh, he's, you know, he had triple bypass last November, and my understanding is that a couple of the bypasses collapsed. Uh, he was actually working out at the time on a rowing machine near St. Joe Hospital and uh, he passed out and uh, fortunately if you're going to have one of these that was the place to have it. There were three cardiologists and a surgeon present. They did CPR on him for 30 minutes which is no small matter. Uh, they also had to zap him uh, a few times to get his heart started again. He flatlined. Uh, and uh, then there were some complications that resulted from that and uh, Tuesday afternoon we were not, well the doctor used the word tenuous as he came out of the room and uh, fortunately God has some plans for Randy yet and he's made improvements every day. Uh, last night he was able to have the breathing tube taken out so now he can talk again uh, we're glad that he was as responsive as he as he has been, and uh, we know he's got a long haul in front of him, but at the same time, uh, a lot of you have been praying, and your prayers are being answered, and I just want you to continue to remember Randy and Linda and their family and your prayers. Uh, Randy, I don't know anybody who knows Randy who doesn't love Randy, and uh, he is a mainstay here in this congregation, uh, one of our elders. Uh, and I think about how fragile life is. Last Sunday, uh, he wasn't feeling well, and he called me over. We both turned 70 this year. I'm just a few months ahead of Randy. But he called me over and he says, do you ever feel like at our age we're starting to wear out? Uh, and that should have been a clue right there that uh, something wasn't working. Uh, but um, I'm glad that God has continued to preserve Randy, and uh, we look forward to having him back. Like I say, he's got a long haul ahead of him, but he's making improvements each day, and so we're just thankful that God has answered our prayers. So continue to pray for Randy. Uh, we want to see him back here greeting. Like I said, I don't know anybody that doesn't like Randy Templeton. Now, if it were me you were talking about, <laughs> but not Randy. We've been in the book of Acts for the last, this is the eighth week of a series called Rediscovering Our Roots. And our purpose in the study of Acts is not simply to look at history, uh, although I, I find history fascinating because history is a great teacher of the future. Uh, man has the ability to recycle his mistakes. And, uh, and what has happened in the past probably will happen in the future. And so I think it's important that we learn from the past. And over the centuries, since uh, the day of Pentecost, what has happened is that man has gotten involved in the government of God's kingdom here upon the earth, and he's messed things up. Uh, layers upon layers of uh, bureaucracy and politicization and all those sorts of things. And then 
uh, when we talk about the government sanctioning Christianity, that may have been a bad thing to happen in the long run because now Christianity has become intertwined with government and human government and the government of God uh, always come into conflict. And so I think it was beneficial for us to go back and look at Christianity from its inception on the day of Pentecost and into that first century. It's important for us to see how God uh, dealt with the, the first Christians who were Jewish and had a Jewish upbringing, Jewish background, and then the admittance of the Gentiles into the kingdom, and then the uh, combination of those two and how God dealt with the various conflicts that arose from that. But you remember that we made a change last week in the book of Acts. Luke has chronicled the day of Pentecost. He's chronicled the early days of that Jewish church and then the entrance of the Gentiles and some of the problems that came up in the Gentile church. And then he started focusing upon Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus. And Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So the focus now is moving toward the Gentiles. And so this last Sunday of this series is going to be taking the last few chapters. And if we were to go into this in great detail, what we would have is a three and a half hour uh, lesson. Now, how many of you want to stay around until about three o'clock uh, this afternoon? Not any of you. Oh, wait, Nancy's out of her mind, but she said she would. Uh, and so uh, we're not going to do that. I'm going to give you a summary of what's left, and then we're going to come back and focus on one small section uh, for our t allotted time this morning. Uh, but if we're going to summarize the book of Acts, uh, remember that there was a time when uh, a prophet by the name of Agabus went to Paul and he uh, took a belt and he wrapped it around Paul and said, the person uh, whose belt this is is going to be arrested and he's going to be imprisoned. And so basically what Agabus does is prophesied that Paul was going to be arrested for the kingdom's sake and uh, to be imprisoned. And that's not really the kind of news you want to receive from a prophet. I want a prophet to tell me, you're going to hit the lottery. But uh, the, Agabus says, uh, Paul, you're about to be arrested and imprisoned. And then we move, that's in the 21st chapter in verses 10 and 11. And then we find that Paul is arrested by the Jewish leaders because his opponents were the people with whom he had been raised, the people with whom he had worked, the people with whom he had been a leader. But they became his enemies because he had made this conversion experience into now his life's calling, and he uh, was perceived as being an enemy of Judaism. And so he was arrested. And then uh, that takes place in the latter part of the 21st chapter. And then the 21st chapter, or rather the 22nd chapter, deals with his defense to the accusation they make. And basically what this is, is a recounting of his conversion experience that we read in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. So the chapter 22 is sort of a retelling, in the words of uh, Paul, of his conversion experience. And that's his defense. And then he decides that he's going to assert his rights as a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he gets to be heard by the Roman government and not be judged by his fellow Jews. And so in Acts 22, verses 22 through 29, he turns himself over to the Roman authorities. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 23, he sees an opening because the Jewish opponents that were opposing Paul are comprised of two various sects, which we've talked about in the past, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And Paul was raised a Pharisee, and he believed in the resurrection of the dead, as the Pharisees did. And so Paul proclaimed himself to be a Pharisee, and so suddenly half of his opposition becomes his allies. And so he divides the crowd and is able to keep from being torn apart. He's saved by the Roman authorities. And then we come into the 23rd chapter to find out that the Jews have plotted that uh, they're going to kill Paul. As a matter of fact, some of them took vows, said they would not eat or drink until they had fulfilled their vow to kill Paul. And Paul's nephew hears about it. He tells the Roman authorities. And so they decide that they were going to transfer for his safety Paul to Caesarea. And Caesarea is about 75 or 80 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. And it's where the Roman governor of that territory resided. And so his case is going to be uh, uh, carried to there. And, And it's interesting to me that Uh, The scriptures tell us that there was a great delegation that accompanied Paul in this transfer. I don't know how many prisoners go from the St. Joseph County Jail to some other place, and they have hundreds of uh, sheriff's deputies accompany them uh, on their journey. Now, if you were somebody of some note, that may happen. But Paul was accompanied by a lot of folks uh, from the Roman army up to Caesarea. And then we find that in chapter 24... Uh, he makes his defense before the Roman governor, whose name was Felix. And we're going to come back to that and look at this in more detail today. But he's there for two years under house arrest. And he has some privileges given to him, but, but for the most part, he's under arrest during this whole time. And then after chapter 25, we come that, uh, chapter 24, we come to 25, in which uh, he goes before the successor to Felix, whose name was Festus, and uh, before he can have judgment pronounced, he decides that his best bet is to exercise his Roman citizenship authority again and make his appeal to Caesar. And so uh, he makes the appeal to Caesar, and then what follows in that is uh, uh, Festus is visited by King Agrippa II. Uh, And King Agrippa was the Jewish king who uh, was subservient to the Roman government, but he's in town, and he and his wife hear his case, and Paul talks about what's happening, and they suddenly realize, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, I'd have to let him go. He's broken no Roman laws. But because his appeal to Caesar, he's going to go to Rome. And so what we find then at the end of the book of Acts, after he makes this perilous journey through the Mediterranean to the city of Rome, that he goes and is imprisoned for two years in Rome. And he preaches the gospel from prison in Rome. And it's there in Rome that he writes a lot of what we have in our New Testament as, as these letters. So that's a kind of a summary of what's in the rest of the book of Acts. So you've read all the book of Acts. And I'm sure you're going to go home today and reread every single verse. If you don't do it today, I would encourage you to read it and read it over again because it is very important. But the remainder of his career as an apostle of the Gentiles was one of very restricted freedom. And when he's in Rome as a prisoner, like I said, he initially had some latitude given to him. He had a house arrest situation where he had friends who could come and minister to him, bring books. He writes to some to bring the parchments, the scrolls, and so forth. He tells them what he needs, and these are going to be provided by his friends. But there's going to be a change of administrations in Rome, and there's this emperor that comes to Rome by the name of Nero. And Nero was insane. He was the emperor, but he was insane. And history tells us Rome was built on seven hills. 
and he wanted to build and restructure some of Rome, and uh, he couldn't uh, exercise eminent domain like our government can today, and so he had uh, some of the sections of Rome set on fire, and he blamed the Christians, because this would go in with their talking about the fires of judgment and so forth. And so the Christians took the blame, and there was great persecution against the church. And it was believed that during Nero's reign, uh, Paul was rearrested and eventually executed as a Roman citizen, which meant that he was beheaded, not crucified. Uh, and beheading, I guess, was a better way to die than crucifixion because it was quicker. But uh, uh, matter of fact, you can go online and Google beheading, and what you'll see, one of the questions asked about that is, how long does the eyes stay open after your beheading? I don't know. I've, I've read of cases where during the French Revolution, a person was beheaded, and for several minutes their eyes followed those, but that's something else for you to look at at your, at your convenience. But he died about uh, AD 68. Yeah, uh, TMI. Uh, <laughs> I'm just fascinated by that stuff. I, I can't help it. It's just what... Now, we're going to move into... Now, let me tell you one more fact about Nero. To show you the insanity and cruelty of Nero, I, I mentioned that he raised this great persecution against the Christians. At one time, he had thousands of Christians impaled on poles and covered with pitch and set on fire to light his way as he rode through the streets of Rome in his chariots. Now, that's the kind of insanity that prevailed in the government of Rome, much the way it is today in D.C. So... Today we're going to conclude our study of Acts with Paul's trial before the Roman procurator or governor of Judea whose name was Marcus Antoninus Felix, or as he's known in the book of Acts, simply Felix. And so now we're in chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. Now, what had preceded in chapter 23 is the Jews uh, arresting Paul, the plot to put Paul to death, and then the transfer of Paul from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. And then five days later, verse 1, five days later the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. He's like the hammer. You've seen those billboards, haven't you? If you're in a big truck accident, call the hammer. And he's got these TV commercials where the hammer comes out. It's insane. Not as insane as Nero, but it's still insane. But they bring a lawyer in, so that's not good. Tertullus is a lawyer, and the reason they brought Tertullus as a lawyer is because he was in a Roman forum for hearing judicial cases. And what is spoken in judicial cases in Rome? Why, it's Latin. This was the language of the law. And so they hire a lawyer to speak for them and to make their case. And his name is Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. And when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Now, I will ask you, what follows is the kind of persuasive language of an, a lawyer trying to massage those in authority. Tertullus says, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Okay, that's his opening statement. What he's doing is he's uh, massaging Felix's ego. 
you know, we've got great reforms. Now, now the history of this is that Felix really wasn't very competent. And he had been born a slave. He got his freedom eventually, attached himself to the Roman army, and eventually worked himself into the ways of ranks until he was appointed as the procurator of Judea. And we believe that this was basically because of nepotism. He had a brother that also was in the Roman government. And this was probably a favor that uh, Caesar allowed to happen simply because of who his brother was. But it was not because that Felix was some great competent individual. But he was ambitious. And so we have Ananias' lawyer Tertullus salving uh, his ego. And so what's the charges? Verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Remember we used to have that troublemakers on the south side? Some of you still have that t-shirt, don't you? Uh, we found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Now, if you're a Roman governor, and you have someone brought before you, and the charges laid before you that they're stirring up trouble among the Jews, you want to make sure that gets quashed as quickly as possible. So they're saying he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And the other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, there was a trial in this country a few years back in which the phrase came about, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Okay, well, none of these charges fit. Uh, What they're saying is he's an instigator of rioting among the Jews. They're saying that he's the leader of this insurrectionist sect, the Nazarenes and that he's desecrated the temple. And they just threw that third one in there because really the Romans don't care who's in the temple. But they had seen him walking around the streets of Jerusalem with a Gentile, and they assumed that when he went to the temple, he took the Gentile with him, so they said he desecrated the temple. So we'll throw that in as additional charge. We can dismiss that charge later on. And so Paul gets to make his defense in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years... You have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Now, he didn't go in there and massage his equal. He said, he said, okay, you've been a judge. I'll make my defense gladly. Here's my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to, wor- uh, to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So he says, only 12 days have gone by. That's not time enough to instigate an insurrection. I didn't stir anything up. They can't produce one witness who saw me do anything in the temple. I didn't desecrate the temple. I didn't do anything except worship. But there's a one charge. They said he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So there's one charge he's going to admit guilt to. Verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe that everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I stand and, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And after several absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Remember, he had collected offerings and gifts from various Christians from around the Uh, area and brought them to Jerusalem for uh, relief of the poor. So what he was doing was a very charitable and good thing. 
He says, I was ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. As a matter of fact, he had gone through a rite of purification. And one of the reasons he went through the rite of purification, he had been advised to do this, but one of the reasons he was advised to do this is because he had been working among the Gentiles. And he wanted to, they wanted to show to the Jews that he was getting that Gentile filth off of him. Now, we're all Gentiles in here. You don't want to associate with us unless you've taken a good shower afterwards. Uh, now, that's, that was the Jewish thinking. That's not Paul's thinking. But he was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple and the courts doing this. And there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you. And so that's it. He's admitted guilt to one thing. He's guilty of being a believer in the raised Messiah. And that's it. There's no way that he had found, been, could be found to have violated any Roman law. And so being tried before a Roman tribunal, Felix is somewhat now in a predicament. He's got to figure out what to do with him. And so he does what any good judge does. He adjourns the case. In verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, now if you're a governor over Judea, and the way started in Jerusalem, and it's mushroomed from Jerusalem into Jerusalem and Judea and the Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, then you're going to become acquainted with something that's going on. He's not finding any riots because of it. What he's finding is, though, there was something that uh, caught his interest. And so, even though he was well acquainted with the way, he adjourned the proceedings, and saying, when Lysias the commander comes, now Lysias is mentioned prior in another chapter as being the Roman soldier who kept Paul from being torn apart by the Jews. So when Lysias comes and gives his testimony, then I'll decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Now again, Felix knew about the way, but he's going to keep Paul under house arrest. And there's a couple of reasons why he's doing this. One is he has a curiosity about Paul and what he's going to say. And the second is he wants a little scratch. He wants a bribe. Now, I can't conceive any politician anywhere wanting something for nothing. That just doesn't happen in our culture. Uh, a couple of years ago, my family and I went to Washington, D.C. for a historic journey, and we got to go to the nation's capital, this great rotunda, the building where they have the house meeting on one side and the Senate on the other, and we stood in line for, what, about an hour waiting to get admittance in to be a witness to the grand proceedings going on in the House of Representatives. And as we got admitted, we sat in the galley, uh, gallery, and as we sat down, we noticed that out of the 435 elected representatives from across this country, there were six on the floor. And they were giving one-minute speeches. We heard one guy talk about Mike, who had just turned 90 in Iowa, and he was a great raiser of corn. And we, we were really thrilled to hear that speech. But the fact of the matter is there were no legislators in that body. We went over to the Senate and did the same thing. It was the same result. The reason was because all of the real business was taking place elsewhere on the Capitol. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. You already know. And it's both sides of the aisle. So we're not getting partisan in this. But there's something about politicians that 
if they're not corrupt, they are unique. And Felix was not unique. And so he says, uh, I'll wait till Lysias comes and I'll decide your case. And Lysias doesn't come for two years. Um, and so, so something happens. Several days, verse uh, 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla. Now, who's Drusilla? Drusilla is a Jew. He's a Roman. She's a Jew. And she was actually a distant relative of King Herod Agrippa. And so uh, she had been married previously, but Drusilla apparently was very beautiful. And so uh, Felix got her to divorce her first husband, and he took her as his wife. <coughs> so we see he's really a politician at heart. And, uh, but she was Jewish, and so she would be familiar with some of the things that uh, were part of Paul's message. And so he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So here's this man who is corrupt, who has the power of life and death and the authority to determine his future, but he's interested in what he's got to say about Jesus. And so it says he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix was afraid. I think that's interesting. There was something in this simple message that Paul gave him that made him fear. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave, and when I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now think about that phrase and hold it in your mind for a moment. Even a Roman authority fears when confronted with the truth of the Christ and the requirements of righteous living. But he says, when I have a more convenient time, I'll call you back to hear more of this. Well, the more convenient time never arrived. Verse 26 says, At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. And so when Paul comes back, the first question Felix has is what? Did you bring your checkbook? Did you bring a bag of cash? Do you have any gold coins? What is it that I can get out of you in order to make your case go away? And of course, Paul doesn't have anything to give him. And so he's left in prison for two years as a political favor of the Jews. Verse 27 says, when two years had passed, now he's in prison for two years. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Finally, Felix's reputation gets back to Rome. It's time to make a change in administration. Now Festus gets inaugurated as the governor of Judea. And because Felix wanted to grant favor of the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Paul is stale in prison when Porcius Festus comes. Now, I want us to take two points away from this passage. And the first one is that Paul's service was not all rainbows and unicorns. How many times have we said, you know, if you become a believer, if you become a child of God, everything's going to start falling into place and it's all going to be all right. But is that what God promised us as we walk the Christian faith? As he promised that, you know, if we just trust in him, it's all going to work out. Yeah, it will in the end. But that journey from here to the end can be mighty rough. And it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns. As a matter of fact, this fulfills what was told to Ananias, who had been sent to baptize Paul. Because when Ananias was told by Jesus in a revelation to go and find Saul of Tarsus, 
He's, Ananias is saying, I don't know, I don't think I want to be around that guy. And Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul is now imprisoned unjustly for two years, being left there as just sort of a pawn. He suffered a lot for the name of Christ. And then I referenced this passage last week when he He's writing to the church in Corinth. There are actually three letters that we know that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We only have two of them in our New Testament. And 2 Corinthians is probably the third letter that he wrote to Corinth. But he wrote and talked about his experience in ministering. He says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak. Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn. So following Christ doesn't mean that it's all rainbows and unicorns from here on out. There are going to be some rough sledding. There's going to be some hard times. That's one of the reasons why we're here in this room this morning. When we consider what Paul went through, to me, that is a complete evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When we take a man of Paul's stature, when as Saul of Tarsus, he was arising above those of his own age in the Jewish religion, when he was a leader among the Jews, when he was part of the Sanhedrin, when he was a man who was on a mission to destroy the church, there's a 180 degree turn that he takes in his life that leads him not into prosperity and good times, but leads him into suffering over and over again until he's finally imprisoned. And so we sit here this morning in air conditioning. It may be a little low for some, but it's still air conditioning. We sit in comfortable seats. No one is waiting outside to jump us because we belong to the way. We roam about relatively free. We can talk to whomever we want about our faith, and they may laugh at us. They may think that we're just something kind of weird, but they're not trying to kill us, but it's not always going to be that way. And it's not that way in some parts of the world today. You go to some parts of the world today, and if you are identified as a believer in Jesus, you are marked for not only persecution but death. We don't read about it in our papers. It doesn't seem to bother us in this country, but there are people on the other parts of the globe who are identified as Christians who are facing persecution even as we sit here this morning. And so we have no guarantees that won't happen to us. So that's the first lesson. And the second that I want us to notice is this statement by Felix. When I have a more convenient time, Time is one of those things that is so precious that is so fleeting. When I think back, I was reading the obituaries this morning in the South Bend Tribune. This is what I do first thing in the morning. I read the obituaries in the South Bend Tribune online, and then I go to the Kokomo Tribune and read, read the obituaries, see if I know anybody there. Well, there was, in this morning, a 
obituary of somebody that I knew who used to worship in this room who had passed away. He'd passed away in July. And uh, as I'm reading through there, I'm thinking back 40 years when he and his wife and his kids were at our house. We lived in Oakside at the time. And uh, uh, we were enjoying a good time together and playing some kind of stupid game. And I'm thinking about, he was 81 when he died, so this he would have been about 41, which would have meant that I would have been, what? 30. 30. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you can think back four decades, and it seems like the snap of the fingers. Some of you young people in this room this morning who are in your 20s and 30s, Someday you're going to wake up if God allows you to continue to breathe and you're going to think, where did the time go? It's passed us by so quickly. And so when we use a phrase like, in a more convenient time, at a more convenient time, I'll send for you. At a more convenient time, I'll make this decision. I will make this decision. When I get all my ducks in a row, when I get my kids raised, when I get enough in the bank account, when I do all of these things and everything's aligned as it should be, then I'll make that commitment. It's not going to happen. There is, never is a more convenient time. And so if you're looking to become a child of God, if you're looking to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to think in the present, in the here and now. And yeah, those bumps may come like they did for Paul. But when you reach eternity, when the years have passed you by, you can look back and say, that more convenient time I wasn't waiting for, I made the decision, and it was the right decision to make. This is the end of the book of Acts for us. I hope that you've enjoyed kind of rediscovering our roots, where we stand as Christians, where we stand as believers in Jesus Christ. Not that we put all these layers of bureaucracy and all the divisions that have happened over the hundreds of years, but in the pure, simple, unadulterated practice of a belief in Jesus as the risen Messiah. It's what got Paul killed. It's what got every one of the apostles killed, with the exception of John, who suffered tremendous persecution. People have died over the years. But that movement, that way that began on the day of Pentecost and continues to today, has overtaken all the earth without ever a single shot being fired. Because Jesus is the risen Messiah. Will you please bow with me? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you, dear Lord, for what you have given us through your son Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for preserving this history for us. That we might see how it was practiced in that first century and that we might, to the extent possible, replicate it, Father. And I just pray, Father, that we will have the courage of our convictions that Jesus is the risen Messiah and that we'll proclaim it loudly and boldly as Paul did. Wherever we are, in our places of business, where we work, where we go to school, where we congregate and socialize, Father, let us be known as people of the way. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.